So we come to Job 32. Again, the entire chapter, God's word from the Old Testament. Give your attention to it. True and enduring and given to us as people. God's word, Job 32. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Barhel, the Buzite of the family of Rom, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he, and when Elihu saw that there were there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. And Elihu, the son of Barachel, the Buzite, answered and said, I am young in years, and you are aged. Therefore I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I said, Let days speak, and many years teach wisdom. But it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. It is not the old who are wise, nor the aged who understand what is right. Therefore I say, listen to me. Let me also declare my opinion. Behold, I waited for your words. I listened to your wise sayings while you searched out what to say. I gave you my attention, and behold, there was none among you who refuted Job or who answered his words. Beware lest you say we have found wisdom. God may vanquish him, not a man. He has not directed his words against me, and I will not answer him with your speeches. They are dismayed. They answer no more. They have not a word to say. And shall I wait, because they do not speak, because they stand there and answer no more? I also will answer with my share. I also will declare my opinion, for I am full of words. The spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my belly is like wine that has no vent, like new wineskins ready to burst. I must speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. I will not show partiality to any man or use flattery towards any person, for I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would soon take me away. As far as the reading of God's word, may bless it to us. So how well do you take advice? Do you welcome the opinions of others, or do you greet counsel with a big eye roll? Well, certainly scripture calls us to be humble listeners and to be teachable. But this doesn't negate the fact that not all counsel is created equal. Some advice is not not even to the point, and some is downright incorrect. Then there's the issue of whether it was solicited or not. If you ask for it, you listen better. But if someone out of the blue volunteers a wonderful plan for your life, it can feel like a sour pill bit like an invasion of privacy. And particularly relevant is the person who offers the guidance. If you respect the person, if there's someone who's seasoned and skillful, then their views go down easier. But if the instructions hail from someone you find annoying or not experienced, 
Merely doing the smile and nod can be painful. And this is especially bitter when that irksome upstart is actually right. You know what they advise is correct, but it's all you can do to follow it because of who said it and how they said it. Well, as readers of the book of Job, we arrive at a similar situation. A new character enters the debate who has much knowledge to share, but it doesn't go down very smoothly, at least at the beginning, because of who says it. So Job has rested his case. He staked his claim. He is righteous to the uttermost. He signed his affidavit, and now the Lord must answer Job has left the stage wide open, a platform of silence for God to respond with an explanation. Yet for a while now, we have merely assumed that the friends had nothing else to say. They have been quiet, after all, since Bildad in chapter 25. Though this has not been officially confirmed, Job maybe just was long-winded, they could speak again. But alas, our suspicion is affirmed. The three men are finished. Not a word is left for them. And the reason being that Job was righteous in his own eyes. Job was stubbornly immovable about his uprightness. So it's no use to try to convince him otherwise. Though this reason raises a curiosity. Namely, whose opinion is this? The friends or the narrator? If it's the friends, then we expect such negative frustration from their point of view. But if it's the narrator, then this judgment is more condemning. For the force of being righteous in your own eyes is proud self-righteousness, which is not a good look. An assessment from the narrator is reliable, but one from the friends is skewed. So then, is Job arrogantly self-righteous? Or are the friends merely frustrated that Job was correct over against them? Well, we're not sure. Clarity is not given us, given to us on this, on this dilemma at this point. We have to wait to see if our curiosity gets scratched. But while we ponder this, a new character angrily steps into the silence left by Job. He left it for God, but in comes a man, whom we've never met before. Indeed, this whole time, the impression given is that there are four men out in the landfill. It's been a private conversation between Job and his three amigos. But now we learn that someone has been eavesdropping. Another guy has been hiding in the peanut gallery. An invisible character now becomes visible. Who is this stranger? Well, we are given a longer meet and greet with him. First, his name is Elihu, which means he is my God or he is God. And this name shows up in Israel. It's the same name as Elkanah's grandfather. Also, Elihu is a variant of the name Elijah. On first impression, he seems like a Hebrew, a Semite, who resembles Elijah. Next, his dad's name is Barakel, which means God has blessed. And this is another a sign of a good pedigree. Elihu's clan, though, is a Buzite, which is the same name as Ezekiel's dad and Abraham's nephew, so seemingly of noble Israelite stock. And yet Buzi means shamed one, which is troubling genetics. Finally, Elihu belongs to the family of Rom, 
Now, Ram is also a Hebrew name that is found in the tribe of Judah, and it means he is exalted. Now, this name could be honorific of God, the exalted one, or it could describe Elihu, the arrogant one. Thus, our introduction to Elihu is a bowl of mixed flavors. Positively, he has a long and noble heritage, seemingly linking him to Israel, even back to Abraham. Negatively, though, two of the names mean shameful and proud. The noble and ignoble swirl together in Elihu that leave us guessing. Who is this stranger who has remained hidden this whole time? Moreover, next to his name, we learn that he's angry. In fact, four times in the first five verses we're told that he's burning with anger. And as you know, anger is a volatile human emotion. Now, this could be righteous anger in imitation of God's holy wrath. Yet it also might be sinful and and, um, foolish human frustration infused with selfishness and pride. We're reminded of what Proverbs says in chapter 14, he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Indeed, an angry man makes us leery of Elihu. Though we are helped by reading the ground of his fury. One, he is mad that at Job for justifying himself more than God. That is, Job beat the drum of his own righteousness as first and primary with little interest in affirming God's righteousness. Now, Job didn't uh, condemn God, but he did stress his own uprightness to such an extent that the implication was God was put in the dock. Job is so pious, so explain yourself, God. Now, to insist on your own piety over against God's glory is unbalanced priorities. So this motive for anger seems accurate. Two, though, Elihu is mad at the three men for not being able to answer Job, and they condemned Job. And these measure up. For the three definitely were not successful in countering Job's arguments, and they falsely lambasted Job as a felon above all others. And yet there's a wrinkle here in the text. There's a textual variant in verse 3 that reads, They, three friends, had declared God to be in the wrong. Yes, the evidence says that the scribes changed God to Job because to have God in this line was too disrespectful. Thus, Elihu is mad at the three because they condemned God. By demanding that the answer to Job's suffering must be about justice, about the retribution principle, and the friend's failure to prove Job's sin, this ends up condemning God. Now, either way, Elihu is upset because the three wrongly condemned, whether it's exactly Job or God, they called unjust what was actually just. And false judgments definitely deserve anger. So then anger is a dangerous emotion for us humans, but the causes of Elihu's anger seem to be well-grounded so far. Additionally, we are informed why Elihu has been silent offstage so far. First, he was patient. He waited for Job to finish speaking. 
Proverbs 29, verse 20, rings in our ears. If you see a man hasty in speech, there's more hope for a fool than for him. The long, quiet listening of Elihu colors him as wiser. Secondly, he waited because they were older than him. The four men are Elihu's seniors. He is a youth compared to them. And such deference is proper respect. It aligns with the fifth commandment and the moral wisdom to heed your elders. The patient respect of Elihu raises him in our estimations. These appear to reveal a noble character. And yet, the fact that he's a younger man raises another red flag. What's a young punk doing invading the serious argumentation of four senior sages? Thus, many astute commentators and readers of Job judge Elihu to be pompous. In the literature, Job is called the, or Elihu is called the angry young man, a blustering and arrogant whippersnapper. Elihu is judged to be a proud young fool, and those are the worst types of fools. But is this a correct read of Elihu? His anger could dip deeply into folly. But his patient respect smells of better things. His name resembles Elijah, but he comes from the family of Rom, arrogance. Elihu shows promise at the same time as he makes us skeptical. Elihu is an enigmatic figure right out of the gate, and the narrator doesn't resolve the enigma for us. The narrator doesn't assuage our doubts about him, but he makes us listen to Elihu to figure it out for ourselves. Elihu is a mysterious stranger who barges on stage unexpected. But who is this bewildering Elihu? Well, we have to hear him out to figure it out. Is Elihu imaging God, or is he an annoying, loud teenager? Only his own words hold the answer. And Elihu deals with one red flag at the start. He opens by saying, I am a few years and you are all old. I am a freshman and you are senior scholars. Now the youth of Elihu is a serious hurdle. Today, we generally evaluate youth as being more positive as our culture prioritizes more the opposite of Job's culture. We favor that which is new and young, and we're biased against the old people. Yet ancient cultures were more in line with natural law. Wisdom comes with years, and it's not found in the young. Thus, because of his fewer years, Elihu admits that he's awestruck and fearful. He was timid and anxious to declare his knowledge. He decided rather to let the aged speak. Those with many decades will reveal wisdom. And again, a proverb comes to mind. And uh, to answer a man before hearing him out is foolish and disgraceful. Elihu listened before speaking to avoid a great folly. Furthermore, though, this taps into a theme of the debate in the book of Job. The three friends have repeatedly stressed how wisdom is only found with the elders, and their position was in accord with the ancient sages. So then they must be right. 
Now, Job didn't disagree that wisdom belongs to the older, but he did demur that the friend's ancient reasoning was correct in his own situation. Thus, the question pops up, is wisdom found only with those senior in years? Is wisdom of the ancients always correct, or is there another way? And Elihu frankly takes this issue up. He submitted to the will, wisdom of the elders. He listened to them first, but now he appeals to an exception. Verse 8, he says literally, spirit resides in all humans. The Almighty's breath gives understanding to humans. Now here, spirit refers to the life force imparted to all people that makes humans rational and thoughtful. Intelligence is a human attribute from the Almighty, and it doesn't exclusively belong to older people. Wisdom generally comes with age, but age does not guarantee wisdom. Thus, next, Elihu says, The aged are not always wise. There are elders who do not get judgment. That is, some old folks are not wise. Old fools are not uncommon. That is, he accepts the tradition that wisdom comes with age, but he also points to the complexity of providence with its many exceptions. Some elders do not attain wisdom. And Elihu's four elders have not expressed wisdom in their disputations. This is why Elihu has mustered up the courage to say something. And yet, he again underscores his politeness. He waded through all of the four's long speeches. He heard out all their insights and paid close attention as they probed the issues. Moreover, Elihu fully understand, under, understood their respective positions. He took careful notes. Elihu can repeat their counsel back to them. Elihu declares that he is listening has been eloquent. He politely heard them out completely for a full understanding. Additionally, from his careful note-taking, Elihu has an insight, verse 14. Namely, Job didn't arrange his case against Elihu. Job hadn't directed and shaped his arguments to address the thoughts of this young man. Also, Elihu will not use the friend's reasoning to address Job. He isn't going to repeat what the three have said. Now, as you'll remember, the friends were annoyingly repetitive. They have rehashed the same point as if they were beating a dead horse. Thus, Elihu has new material. He has insights that Job has not dealt with, and he will not mimic the redundancy of the friends. Elihu comes armed with a fresh perspective. Thus, now that the four have run out of words, Elihu must say something. Indeed, he stresses that he's not interrupting anyone. He isn't cutting off any of the four or giving them short shrift. Elihu is not acting hastily to take the stage while the others still had more to share. No, they've all stopped. No more words are left to Job and the other three. Now, as long as he's not blowing his own horn... Elihu is going up in our estimation. His eloquent listening and polite patience are respectable. 
Yet into this heavy silence, Elihu insists that he must speak. He's constrained to open his mouth. As he says, I am full of words, I must have my say. I, too, will announce my knowledge. And his urgency to talk is a psychosomatic necessity. That is, words fill him. His spirit, or the spirit, of, of fills his belly and makes it bloat and presses up with inside of him. His belly feels like an unopened wine bottle. It is new wine in a wineskin ready to pop. As remember, Jesus said, no one puts new wine in an old skin for it will burst. Well, this is Elihu. His words are like a new wine fermenting within him without a release valve. He's about to spontaneously combust. Though there is another level to this analogy. For spirit can refer to one's uh, intellect, your thoughts. And in the wisdom literature, belly can refer to the chamber of your mind and memories. To store up in the belly was to safeguard knowledge and ideas. Thus, this spirit is not raw and reckless emotion. It isn't careless folly that a person rudely burps as a gross thing. No, these are more so rational thoughts that he feels compelled to publish. Thus he exclaims, let me speak. Oh, how I need relief. When your bowels are swelled up like a balloon, you ache for a pressure relief. And so Elihu must open the valve to declare his knowledge. And yet this is the fourth time he has said that he must talk. Such repetition seems a little arrogant, But such repetition also betrays anxiety and timidity. Elihu seems to feel insecure about being the youthful exception. It's like he's giving himself a pep talk to take the stage. So on one hand, there is confidence, maybe overconfidence in Elihu, that he has knowledge and a real answer to the debate. But on the other, he's nervous about speaking up as a young man. Now, this feels very human, but it also prolongs the mystery. Is Elihu pompous, who feigns polite humility? Or is he a respectful youth, constrained by truth that he must voice? We're still unsure. But we are tipping towards having a good feeling about this young man. Finally, though, Elihu, Elihu promises to show no favoritism. As you know, judgment requires objectivity to curb any bias towards any one party for any reason. So Elihu assures that he will not be biased towards anyone. He doesn't even know how to flatter. Flattery and favoritism is a skill Elihu has never learned. Besides, he feels deeply the fear of the Lord if he did flatter with partiality. As he says last, my maker would soon carry me off. Elihu knows that he stands quorum Deo before God, who will judge him for any wrong words, any improper tones, and for all prejudice. The fear of the Lord 
seems to be strong with this young Padawan, Elihu. And with this, Elihu concludes his introduction. But from this first foot forward, we're still undecided about his character. The jury is still out about this mysterious stranger. Elihu did check many good boxes. Patient, listening, not quick to speak, and respectful of elders. This is sufficient positive evidence for us to hear him out to give him the benefit of the doubt. And yet, he's still not quite in the clear. For Elihu's anger is still a risk factor. Him claiming to be the exception to youthful folly, to have the necessary knowledge, to have the right answer, this could be arrogance behind a thin veneer. Our worries about Elihu remain. We need to keep listening, and we need to not be hasty to anger. Yet one thing has been proven from this chapter. As he said, not all who are older are wise. Some elders lack understanding. And after listening to Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, we know this is true. Their advanced age and their superior education didn't help them towards wisdom. It didn't make them right. Similarly, that a young man can share in wisdom, this too we have witnessed to be true. It may be the exception, and Elihu himself may not be the junior wise man. This is yet to be determined. But the principle stands. Not all elders are wise, and some minors can be wise and knowledgeable. And this real exception is essential to acknowledge because it's the very exception taken by Jesus. Yes, many oppositions stood against our Lord. He was from Nazareth. No Messiah comes from this town. Jesus had no interest in earthly power as a royal Messiah should. He was poor from a no-name family. Jesus didn't read the law, as did the Pharisees. He didn't venerate the ancient and wise tradition of the elders. Why would anybody embrace such an unlikely man as the Messiah? And to top it all off, Jesus was young. He was about 30 when he began his ministry. The Pharisees and the priests were probably twice his age. There's no way the elder scribes can be wrong and a young upstart hick like Jesus can be right. Moreover, the Pharisees rested in old traditions. Such time-tested traditions embody ageless wisdom, a wisdom that survives the turmoil of centuries, one that remains valid when all else changes. There's no way a 30-year-old punk could be right over the ancient and prove, ancient tradition and proven wisdom of the sages. And yet, the young Christ was right. Jesus didn't embody the angry young fool, but he was the wisdom of God incarnate. Our Lord was not Mr. Pompous as the priests mocked him, but he lived out and spoke A diamond-grade wisdom. Indeed, the wisdom of Christ was proven in his resurrection to be our only mediator and savior. The youthful death of Jesus, we are redeemed from all sin 
and by the and from the curse of death. By his young righteousness, Jesus obtained for you justification, adoption, and life everlasting. Yes, your entire salvation, your whole life now and forevermore, comes not from a gray-haired sage like Gandalf, but it hails from Jesus Christ, who didn't have a single gray hair. Moreover, one of the superior attributes of Jesus which is also seen here in Elihu, is that he is one who listens. Whether you are old or young, a primary element of wisdom is listening. Wisdom hears before it speaks. So Jesus, as our high priest and mediator, listens to you. He hears all your prayers Christ takes note of all your burdens and anxieties, your joys and desires. As it says in 1 Peter, we can cast all our cares on Jesus, our great shepherd. And Jesus hears you out completely. And then, after giving you a full ear, Jesus turns around to pray with and for you so that you might receive Timely mercy and grace. Yes, beloved, you have the all-wise ear of Jesus Christ, and his ears are continually open to you. What a wonderful benefit of grace. How glorious and tender is our Savior and Lord. And with Christ listening to you, how much more should we hear him out? In the gospel and in his entire word, the supremely wise Son of God is speaking to you. How then can we not respond also with eloquent listening? Indeed, becoming better hearers and better readers of God's word is crucial to our faith and our maturity in wisdom. Interpreting scripture with bias or prejudice, with hasty folly or arrogance, should not be. Rather, with humility and the reason that comes from God, may we ever strive to be better readers and listeners of Scripture, God's inspired word. For the better we hear Jesus, the more poignant his blessings are felt, and the more we are able to offer up Eloquent thanksgiving. Yes, eloquent listening to the gospel yields eloquent and sincere worship to our triune God, which is a foretaste of heaven for us, a sharing in our chief end to glorify and enjoy him forever. Thus praise the Lord for our young and all-wise Savior, Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord that he is always listening to you, and he never shuts his ears. And thus, with us having heard his wisdom, may then we respond to praise his name forever. Amen.